Investors Chronicle. It's Thursday, the 23rd of February. We are here recording another Companies and Markets show. My co-host, John, has moved on to past his new, but I, Dan Jones, Deputy Editor of the IC, am still here. And I'm joined by three guests this week. Over the line, we have Mark Robinson and Arthur Sants. Good morning, Dan. Uh, morning. Arthur, Arthur, just about with us there, clearly. <laughs> and, uh, and here in the studio, for the first time, we have uh, Chris Akers. Chris, how are you? Very well, Dan. Good to be here. Yeah, travelling down from uh, from Scotland. Not staying in a Premier Inn, as we'll discuss. Yeah, well, it, exactly, because we are, we are going to talk about hotels to begin with. But but yeah, inconveniently for this segment, you're not staying in a hotel. But yes, it's a, it's a busy week this week with all manner of companies reporting, as you'd expect this time of year. We are going to start by looking at Intercontinental Hotels Group, which had its own results in the past few days. Chris, you covered them. Uh, all looking pretty good in terms of... The figures themselves and the outlook, you know, IHG after obviously a tough few years is sounding quite chipper again. It is. And that's reflected, as I discussed in the piece with management, um, announcing a big new share buyback program, um, bumping up the dividend, dividend as well. So they are very bullish on this whole narrative about the return of leisure demand, hospitality demand, hotel demand, and that is reflected in the figures. Um, I think the interesting thing with these results was the US performance. It's the key market for the company. It's where it has most of its rooms. It's the biggest revenue driver. Um, and revenues in the US were up by 30% in the year. So the demand recovery looks looks strongest in the States. Um, the company said back in October that business travel was back to pre-COVID levels. Um, but I think the overall narrative across markets is that leisure travel started recovering first with business and group travel then picking up as well. And I think interestingly, the company said that they haven't seen any signs of uh, consumers resisting price increases or leisure demand falling off. So it's definitely a bullish outlook from them. Mm. Yeah, this kind of appetite for travel uh, as part of the, you know, revenge spending, I suppose, as some people have started to call it post-pandemic, where People still, uh, you know, are very keen to, uh, you know, have those holidays and enjoy them again. Perhaps, you know, full of still full of a new appreciation for them. But but the U.S. market, as you say, is really crucial, and the the U.S. economy, as far as uh, IHG reports, it seems to be going, you know, gangbusters. The prices are up, and you know, uh, occupancy rates are uh, uh, very high. As you say, that even that business travel aspect, which maybe hasn't come out quite so quickly in some other markets, is is still right there. So it's quite um it's quite remarkable, really. I. Uh, I was staying in a U.S. hotel at the end of last year, and I could tell you the prices are certainly a lot higher than they uh, were a few years ago, even accounting for inflation and everything else. So uh, um, that's clearly to IHG's advantage. One other aspect I want to talk about is China. Uh, now, the company had invested heavily in uh, you know, its Chinese hotels back right before the pandemic, really. You know, the, it was talking about it at the end of 2019 as a, as a big potential driver in the future. Obviously, that quickly went awry. But with China's reopening now, that that could be, uh, you know, there could be a lot of scope there for for future growth as well. Yeah, I mean, looking back now, it probably seems like terrible timing with all that investment right before COVID hit. Um, and it's worth mentioning that China is the smallest division um, in terms of revenues, um, unsurprisingly, given 
how the government there has approached uh, COVID lockdowns and zero COVID, etc. Um, and sales in China fell by a quarter uh, in the results in the year. Um, it's quite hard to say, I think, how that will change this year in 2023. Um, analysts and management are saying it will be a relatively uninterrupted year, obviously, compared to the last couple of years. Um, so given given the investment the company has made in China, I could see some big gains, good big gains this year, I think. Mm. I, I Yeah, I've been quite personally speaking, you know, quite uh, interested in the China reopening story. I think it could be a big change factor this year. Well, you know, that's not particularly a radical thing to say, but I suppose it will be uh, intriguing to see whether Chinese growth does, you know, whether it is around the country or whether, again, as we've seen with ourselves and with in Europe and the US, whether, uh, you know, Chinese residents are keen to get out the country and travel to other um, countries now that they can do so for the first time. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, one thing to say with IHG, uh, as with many leisure travel companies over the past few weeks, months, share price has already gone up a fair amount since the lows in September, October. So better to better to travel than arrive, I suppose you could say. Uh, you know, some of that is being priced in already. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And that's something investors should should bear in mind. And, and that's one reason we kept the, the recommendation on, on a hold um, for IHG. Yeah. Um, the valuation... Um, so the shares are rated below the, the five-year average, which is obviously attractive, um, but still trading at around 20 times forward earnings, which is pretty pretty hefty. Um, and yeah, as I argued in the piece, I think the more positive outlook for this year is probably reflected in, in the prices they mm. demand. Well, another uh, hotel or hotel focus company in which you are uh, fairly positive is Whitbread, uh, which we had as an idea a couple of weeks back in the magazine. Uh Premier Inn owner, of course. And, uh, you know, it's a different uh, uh, structure to uh, IHG, which we can come on to in a moment as well, but, but also a different focus uh, geographically in some ways. Premier Inn, obviously big in uh, these parts. It has expansion plans as well, though, in the likes of Germany, and it's investing quite a lot as well. You know, got some quite big investment plans. Premier Inn does seem to be taking market share, but, you know, can can Whitbread pull off the, these perhaps ambitious plans? Yeah, I, I am quite bullish on, on this. Um, so Premier Inn has raised its long-term room target in the UK and Ireland, which is its key market, um, up to 125,000 rooms. And that was up from 110,000 previously. Um, as you mentioned, it is expanding in, in the German market as well. And that market is relatively relatively fragmented. So there's a lot of potential there for the company to, to make some pretty serious gains and become become a market leader. Um I think one reason why Whitbread's done so well is its pricing power. So management keep mentioning um, that the rest of the sector doing badly has actually actually benefited it because you have other operators shutting their doors, closing sites, and Premier Inn is there to um, raise prices and consumers are paying those prices Um which goes along with its very strong brand equity. Yeah, I, I guess, it, you know, well, Premier, Premier Ian Whitbread would certainly like to say they're in a sweet spot where you benefit from the cost of living crisis because they're relatively keenly priced still, but at the same time, people are, people are prepared to pay a little bit more because of the lack of competition. Perhaps also, you know, I mean, you know where you are with a Premier Ian, right, as well. There's that perhaps a degree of reassurance where 
you know, you go to, you know, somewhere in the UK you haven't been before, if it's if it's business travel even, or, you know, say a wedding, you know, some classic Premier Inn type uh, stays, uh, and you know what to expect. It's not like you book somewhere else and you might, you know, you might be disappointed. So perhaps that's uh, a string to their bow as well. I think that move into Germany is interesting as well, because I remember um, reading a while back some, some research which was saying that the, the German market, and I think the Italian market as well, there's a dearth of... Um, medium-sized, medium-price uh, ho- hotels in both those economies. And so that presents uh, that presents a real opportunity going forward. Yeah, international expansion, uh, you know, a big a big driver for Whitbread and Future, they hope, as with IHG. We, we should note the, the difference or the, the distinct contrast in the business models as well, uh, uh, which you touched on in your, in your Whitbread piece as well, Chris, in terms of they own quite a lot of freeholds, which is relatively rare and they are relatively asset heavy in their business model compared with peers ihg is completely at the other end of things where it's all franchise based you know it's uh, uh, you know no assets at all effectively there's room for both in the current environment i suppose where you know a tougher economic time doesn't necessarily preclude either an asset heavy or an asset like model but it's something for investors to be aware of yeah i think i think that's right um so about half of premier the total premier in states is, is freehold um so and management made the argument that this actually protects them from higher property costs and um gives them lower earnings volatility during ec- economic downturns and i think an, the analysts I, I spoke to for this piece seemed quite bullish as well on on the asset heavy model uh, and on the franchise side uh, something else that uh, attracted our attention this week entirely unrelated in many ways other than the fact that uh, this company, Domino's, you know, is, is a famous uh, uh, company built around the franchise model, like uh, IHG. Domino's Sydney. Now, uh, you know, this is a Sydney listed company. Uh, Domino's is one of those companies with listings all around the world with various franchises. Uh, there was quite a big warning there, in terms of you know the company, the the Australian listed company, was saying, you know, we've put our prices up, but we're losing quite a lot of volume, quite a lot of customers as a result. Shares were down 25%. And in fact, that did send the, the UK listed equivalent shares down 5% earlier this week as well. Uh, Domino's PLC reports in a couple of weeks. So something to watch for there, whether that kind of trend does shift over to the UK as well, because we perhaps haven't seen so much as that as you as you might have expected, given the, the precious consumers are under. But Let's turn to something a little more cutting edge now for our second segment, semiconductors. This is a topic really to get your teeth into. There's so many facets to it. It's very interesting, I think, uh, certainly from a journalistic point of view, hopefully from a reader and listener point of view as, as well. Uh, at the heart is, is the US-China trade war, uh, which is really in many ways a chip war. It means you've got restrictions and subsidies being thrown around by nation states, Add to that, you've got the changing circumstances on the ground as we go from you know the high-profile chip shortage possibly to a glut, all in the context of an industry that is really vital to our collective futures and certainly our technological futures. Uh, so this is our cover story this week. And Arthur Sants, you have written the piece. Uh, can we start with these? Uh, we'll get into the investment implications specifically in a minute, but can, can we start with some of these subsidies and uh, restrictions being brought in, specifically in the US. Its CHIPS Act has got a lot of attention uh, since that was passed last year, uh, trying to onshore production, trying to restrict what China can do and what companies, semiconductor companies, can do with China. You know, these are ambitious aims given how big some of these companies are and how embedded they all are in the 
the global economy, will it succeed in you know moving the dial much in terms of where manufacturing is based and and how companies do business? Uh, hi Dan, yeah, thanks. So I guess a little bit of short-term history put it into context. The sort of first major issue the U.S. had with the Chinese chip industry came in 2019 with Huawei, and there was that fear in 2019 about China spying on us by installing all this 5G around the world through Huawei. And to curtail them, the U.S. put sanctions on to prevent companies providing the chips and the equipment needed to make the chips for 5G technology. So there was a lot of success with that in 2019, and that was under Trump. But then we moved forward, and last year in October, Biden had a more widespread sanctions policy, which is basically now preventing any high-tech chips being um, exported to China, and it now includes ASML, which is the Dutch company that makes the lithography machines that are needed to make these chips. So all of this stuff is really essential to the Chinese chip industry, which doesn't have much domestic advanced manufacturing at all. And so those chips are stuff for like AI and like supercomputers and all the stuff that the Americans think are really strategically important. It wouldn't include sort of less important chips like a memory chip that go into your iPhone, for example, but it's focusing on the really high-end stuff. And then the other side of that is the Americans also want to, as well as curtailing the Chinese effort, which I think will be, they will be quite successful at that, judging by what happened in 2019 and what I've read about the lack of sort of advanced manufacturing capability in China. I think that side of it will be very successful. The bit that's sort of more in the balance is whether America will be able to boost its own domestic chip manufacturing. They have the Chip and Science Act, which is, um, I think, it's $52 billion worth of subsidies for companies that are building manufacturing capability in the US. TSMC, which is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is building a $40 billion plant in Arizona. But words coming out of TSMC suggest that that's going to be much harder to make that plant near even close to how productive their plants in Taiwan are. Yeah, obviously, there's, you know, political incentives and certainly for them to, to make that plant, they're certainly being lent on as well somewhat, uh, with the US also being quite concerned about the amount of manufacturing that goes on in Taiwan, given the geopolitical risks there. But Europe as well is looking at something similar, looking at its own CHIPS Act. Uh, Intel is another company which, as we discussed in the piece, has been left behind in some ways in recent years, and, and um, but they are looking to get in on some of these subsidies as well. So, so there is going to be, you know, factories being built. I suppose it's just a question of, it's not just about the the infrastructure, is it? It's about the, as you say, the the, the manpower and the uh, the knowledge and the the know how as well, and whether those can be shifted across and and translate and and work in the same way as they have done in completely different parts of the world. Yeah, the main issue that TSMC have, it seems, is with U.S. labor and U.S. regulation. So the U.S. have tighter like health and safety regulation, lots of other regulations that make it a lot more expensive but also the workers don't have the same um expertise as the Taiwanese workers and have been using these like really high um complicated machines for years but also the some of the comments um are sort of about how I guess the Taiwanese workers do exactly what they what they are told as soon as they're told it and have a higher a better work ethic than their 
American colleagues. So not only the Americans um, want more money because they're more expensive workers, but they also seemingly are less effective workers as well, which isn't a great combination um, when it comes to making these chips. I've not heard as much about the about the European workers. I'm not sure where they fit on the sort of spectrum of Taiwanese workers to US workers in effectiveness. Yeah. Well, we could we could uh, debate the various uh, countries and uh, uh, the uh, national perhaps stereotypes and otherwise all day. But but you're right. There, there was the I think it was the New York Times piece recently. What was talking about some of the um, uh, TSMC internal or perhaps un, un, um, uh, unnamed uh, people in the industry speculating about U.S. workers' uh, ability to match their Taiwanese counterparts. But but you know the proof will be in the pudding in that in that case. That's um. Let's talk about some some investment implications as well, because uh, as we said at the top, it's not just uh, about the the subsidies and, and uh, onshoring. It's also uh, that semiconductor story right now is also about the shortage, which we famously saw during the pandemic, perhaps turning uh, 180 degrees into a bit of a glut. We've got a situation right now, obviously, where demand is falling somewhat due to economic circumstances. What, what are you know companies saying about this? How is this affecting the different companies uh, in the sector? It sort of depends on what the company is doing. So the chip industry is famously cyclical, like the oil industry, for example. When economies are doing well, people consume a lot more chips globally. And when things are going badly, they consume less chips. It's sort of been exaggerated this time around because there was that huge boom during the pandemic when people were stuck at home so demand for personal computers and phones and digital like consumer electronics went through the roof so there was a huge spike in demand and actually when they said that there was a shortage of chips they were, they were making more chips than ever during covid they just weren't making as much as people wanted because the demand boom was so much and then people built up their inventories loads so they these companies started building loads and loads of semiconductors because of this spike in demand but then we had the inflation in 2022, consumers have squeezed. So there's now sort of, we have too many chips and not enough people to buy them. And you can sort of see that all the way through the supply chain. Apple said that Mac sales were down at 30% and their sort of iPhone sales were down 8%. And then Samsung, who make the memory chips for for Apple, their results were really poor um, because obviously with less demand for demand for the iPhones from the US consumers is less demand for the, the memory chips that go in them. The company that seems to be a bit more resilient, so those are the consumer electronics and memory chips are particularly vulnerable. So that's Samsung and Korea. TSMC and NVIDIA have been more durable because they produce logic chips, which are used for like high-end computing and the supercomputers that are currently being used a lot in the as the infrastructure in the AI wave that people are obsessing about. And investment in cloud computing, supercomputers is actually, it's continued to grow even a blight. It's a slightly slower rate than it was, but growth in sort of computer infrastructure has continued. So actually NVIDIA's results came out this morning and were, were, were good. They, the quarter on quarter data center revenue was up 6%. And the quarter-on-quarter gaming revenue was up 19%. Um, admittedly, gaming revenue had fallen significantly in the first part of the year because it's a consumer business. But data center revenues at NVIDIA have just continued to go 
up and up and up as more and more of the big cloud computing players have been investing in computing. So it sort of depends on which part of the industry you are looking at. Mm. Yeah, with NVIDIA, as you say, I mean, the stock has been on quite a, a tear since the, the AI uh, boom or anticipated AI boom became something uh, investors were, were focusing on. Uh, and yeah, I think up again, another 9% overnight on the back of these results. Uh, markets are always forward looking, of course, as well. And we do touch on the piece, the fact that some analysts think now that that actually a lot of the the near term pain is being discounted and 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 you know more the medium term prospects are starting to be focused on again that's certainly the case with with ai uh there's a lot there's a lot of detail in the piece uh there's also a, a very helpful um uh, glossary if you will of uh the leading players in the sector it can sometimes be confusing or, or to me perhaps you know uh it can be confusing to work out the difference between the, the manufacturers and the designers and the uh uh, the lith- lithography manufacturers and what have you. So there's some useful information in there. Yeah, on that point, point Dan, I think uh, for our listeners, it would be well worth uh, their time to have a look at uh, ASML holdings that uh, Arthur alluded to earlier on, because I think they're actually the market leader in this uh, photo lithography uh, technology as well. From what I uh, read recently, they're about five to 10 years ahead of anyone else uh, on the planet. And of course, it's that technology that manufactures the most um, advanced chips as well. So it's high. I think it may be the the largest European uh, tech stock by market cap. Um, but people rarely talk about it. Um, I think it was a, a joint university uh, Dutch government spin off a few years ago, and it's just developed into this uh, uh, this incredible uh, market leader with that's incredibly also incredibly important from that geopolitical angle yeah absolutely and this is a company we we discuss in a piece and as you say it's it's definitely a global leader perhaps slightly uh, unheralded and that does also tie in with the the european subsidies as well you know europe is trying to get more uh, chip manufacturing uh, made on the continent but some are saying well you know you need to focus on the strengths you've got a company like asml here you know the lithography machines which are you know etching the designs into chips are what you were really uh, expert at and you should be focusing on that so there's all these kind of political considerations uh, mixed in there as well speaking of which i did want to just end on the uk we do talk about some uk prospects too uh specifically iqe uh which uh is a company that has been in the headlines a little bit in recent weeks because it's been agitating perhaps not unreasonably, given what's been going on in the US and uh, Europe and and what have you, for the uh, UK government to come out with its long-awaited, another long-awaited paper, as there are so many in so many sectors, uh, a long-awaited semiconductor strategy, which has been promising since last autumn. IQE has been making noises about moving more production overseas. Uh, If there aren't, you know, support, if support isn't forthcoming. Arthur, you you visited actually the, uh, the... uh, IQE hub or the the UK's semiconductor or chip hub if you will in uh, in Newport recently uh what did you kind of learn from that visit yeah I went when I went a few weeks ago it was nice um I was the first time I'd visited one of the factories which was cool it sort of gave a bit more perspective to how everything works um and seeing that they have these like super clean rooms that you can't enter because um you can't have any sort of dust or anything touching any of the wafers so i wasn't actually allowed in there but they let me look at it through a glass window so their factory in newport 
it's a massive building, but then when you get inside, you realize that most of it's not currently being used. They have about they have ten machines in there, which they use to make their compound wafers. So a wafer is they make the wafers. The wafers will then get sent to the chip manufacturers, and the wafers will get chopped up into different chips. So actually, the IQE is trying to find a way always to make as big a wafers as possible because then you can get as many chips out of them. They're a compound wafer um, company rather than a silicon wafer company, which and they they say they're the leader in the world at this. Probably outside of China, they are the leader. But compound wafers haven't been very popular up to this point because they're much more expensive than the traditional silicon wafers. The benefit of them though is they're more efficient and they're used in a few sort of next generation technologies. The one that they are most excited about is 3D sensing. So it'd be useful in sort of virtual reality, but they're already in your iPhones for when your iPhone senses your face. And also for electric vehicle charging, because they're more efficient, you would lose less energy when you're charging your car. And people didn't really care that much about energy efficiency before when energy was really cheap. But obviously, as energy gets more expensive, energy efficiency becomes more important. And even if the chip is more important, you might save enough money on the sort of efficiency side. So when your laptop charger gets warm, and if you touch it, that's because it's got a silicon chip in and that energy coming off it is what's making the warmth. If it had a compound chip in it, your laptop charger wouldn't wouldn't get warm. So IQ is hoping for these sort of circular, um, these trends to start creating some tailwinds for the company. And currently it has 10 machines in this building, but they said they had room for 90 more. So a massive increase in production if they can find the suppliers to sign the contracts with. And recently they have signed a few new contracts. They've brought in a new CEO um, who used to work at Global Foundries and Qualcomm and has sort of contacts um, in California and Asia. And they're trying to sign some new contracts. And then once they've sort of got the demand in place, they'll then hopefully be able to start building out these machines in Newport. They've also got factories in America as well. Um, and I guess that's where they are eager for the UK government to support them in building out and getting subsidies to build out in Newport. And if they don't get those subsidies, they said that they would presume they would build more of their capability in the US and because just because it'd be so much more cost effective for them where the subsidies are significant compared to the UK. Yeah. The this Newport hub actually is notable as well for uh the company Newport Wafer Fab, which isn't listed, but whose acquisition by a Chinese company was blocked by the uh, the UK in November last year. So, so again, there's geopolitical concerns there, and, and clearly, you know, hopes from IQE for for more investment. The the final piece of the UK puzzle we should touch on is, is Arm Holdings, of course, which speculation about which has been fairly rife in recent months because it's going to list. Looks like later this year, SoftBank is going to list it probably in the US, but the UK has also been lobbying for a UK listing too. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that one as well. But we're going to turn to a different facet of the UK market to finish, which is something we have touched on in recent weeks and months and will probably continue to do so. It's takeovers and takeover activity. Uh, There's been, just in the last 24 hours, there's been more developments in the UK with Wood Group uh, yesterday evening saying it has rejected three offers from Apollo. Uh, and the thing I was interested in, Mark, maybe we can bring you in on, on this, is 
is the the kind of offers we're seeing now. Now we've spoken in the past about you know UK PLC being on sale to, for a certain extent, given relatively low valuations here in some sectors, and and that is arguably being reflected in some of these takeover offers, not least because some of them seem relatively low ball, and some of them increasingly perhaps are getting bumped up, not necessarily to a to a great price, but certainly getting bumped up a little more uh, by shareholders. Uh, I'm thinking of Dignity and, and Devro here uh, in recent weeks. So, you know, what what, what are your thoughts on, on that kind of dynamic? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, th- I think, um, I mean, what what is a, a fair and reasonable price anyway? Uh, as you mentioned, UK stocks have become uh, more attractive for overseas buyers because of the relative uh, weakness of sterling. And even though uh, FTSE 100 companies have enjoyed a or enjoyed a pretty good 2022 they're still uh relatively cheap uh, both in relative uh standards and also by historical measure as well so it's hardly surprising that we've got a few more entrants into the market uh, there it's interesting because foreign direct investment through um, much of last year uh um suffered by comparison to the previous year or so it picked up in the third quarter but uh, as part of that um uh, a activity for uh foreign companies coming in and buying up uk companies that rose by to 25 billion during the third quarter of last year and that's an increase of nearly 14 billion uh year on year so it suggests that um suggests that uh we're a sort of a a, a low cost. Um, we're a low cost target for overseas buyers at the moment, and it's interesting, as you probably notice as well, that private equity equity still sort of constitute uh, a large portion of, of those buyers. Mm-hmm. And the other thing which our bearball columnist has written on this week is that, uh, in the case of Dignity Endeavour, these were recommended offers as well that have been raised, you know, after being recommended, which is somewhat unusual and. Perhaps, perhaps indicative that there is the opportunity to eke out a bit more uh, for some of these deals if shareholders uh, care to do so, which I'm sure they do in most cases. Uh, as I say, Wood Group, it, it, you know, those offers have been rejected, but there's probably the potential. Well, there's certainly the uh, not unreasonable sense now that that Wood Group is in play, so that that could be another company to keep tabs on very closely in the in the weeks ahead. But that does bring us to the end of today's show, though. So thank you to Mark, thank you to Arthur, thank you to Chris, and thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show.